COP21 is over, so where do we go from here? Is this the beginning of the end for fossil fuels? And this week, let's reduce, reuse and recycle. In fact, let's go a lot further than that. I'll introduce you to Mark Shaler and Tracy Rawling Church and ask the question, why buy it when you can borrow it? Hello, this is Anthony Day with your weekly Sustainable Futures report for Friday the 18th of December 2015. I'm not talking just about COP21 this week, but I can't ignore the outcome of the conference which ended in Paris last Saturday the 12th of December. It closed with a round of applause from the assembled delegates and it was hailed by President Obama as the best chance we have to save the one planet we have. David Cameron said, We've secured our planet for many, many generations to come, and there is nothing more important than that. If only that were true. Many other world leaders said optimistic things, and Al Gore, Paul Polman of Unilever, and the International Investors Group on Climate Change all said that this was the beginning of the end for fossil fuels. James Hansen was unimpressed, and he was not alone. Hansen is the former NASA scientist who warned Congress back in 1988, yes, 1988, of the dangers of climate change and recommended that we should reduce consumption of fossil fuels. His response to the Paris Agreement was that it's a fraud and a fake. It's just worthless words, he said. There is no action, just promises. As long as fossil fuels appear to be the cheapest fuels out there, they will continue to be burned. He wants a carbon price. He recommends $15 a tonne, increasing by $10 a tonne each year. All that the Paris Agreement says about that is that it recognises the important role of providing incentives for emission reduction activities, including tools such as domestic policies and carbon pricing. Nothing about cap and trade, which was in the press last week. So what does the Paris Agreement actually say? The final document was down to 31 pages. That's 19 pages of preamble and 12 pages of the agreement itself. I've read it, well, most of it, and there are no longer any square brackets. What it does say is full of good intentions, but is generally vague and flexible in terms of timescales. For example, the objective is to keep global temperature increases well below 2 degrees centigrade and to make efforts to limit it to 1.5 degrees centigrade. It talks about balancing sources and sinks of greenhouse gases by the second half of this century. But many would say that that is far, far too late if the intention is to keep warming below 2 degrees centigrade. It says that greenhouse gas emissions should re reach their peak as soon as possible, bearing in mind that developing countries will need longer to achieve this. This looks like a blank cheque for India, 
a developing country and one of the world's major polluters. Countries must fulfil their INDCs, the Intended Nationally Determined Contributions to Greenhouse Gas Reduction, that they delivered before the conference, but we know that even if fully implemented, these will only limit the temperature rise to 2.7 degrees centigrade. INDCs must be revised and strengthened, but only every five years. There will be a review of progress, but the first review will not take place until 2023. Look again at the TED Talk by Alice Bowes-Larkin on the consequences of delaying the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. The agreement comes into force once countries accounting for 55% of global emissions have ratified it. Republicans are already saying that they will reject the Paris Agreement if they gain power, just as George W. Bush rejected the Kyoto Agreement. Fortunately, this will only happen if they actually gain power. Let's not be too negative about all this. After all, 195 countries did come together at COP21 and signed a unanimous agreement. It may not go far enough, and it may not go fast enough, but at least it's going in the right direction. As Lord Nicholas Stern, former chief economist at the World Bank and currently chair of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics, said, it's a turning point in the fight against unmanaged climate change, which threatens prosperity and well-being among both rich and poor countries. Time to fight on. A while ago, I told you that I was going to go to the Northwest Sustainable Business Quarterly meeting, where I expected to meet some interesting people. I was not disappointed. The theme of the meeting was the harm in your office, product life cycle, from world sourcing and product mapping to end-of-life disposal. The first speaker was Mark Shaler, director at Ape Sustainability Design Purpose. He aims to make stuff better and make better stuff. You can find out more on LinkedIn. His name is spelt S-H-A-Y-L-E-R or thisisape.co.uk. That's T-H-I-S-I-S-A-P-E dot co.uk. In a wide-ranging presentation, Mark told us how the global manufacturers now controlled most of the world's resources. He told us that obsolescence was still with us, no longer mechanical obsolescence, it's now driven by software and fashion. It means we throw away too much value because we measure recycling efficiency by volume, not value. He told us about coltan, or tantalite, the raw material for the tantalum capacitors that are found in every smartphone and almost every electronic device. Officially, some 14% of coltan comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, but some comes from the neighbouring countries of Rwanda and Uganda, which is strange because they have no deposits of the material. The conclusion is that it's all smuggled in from the DRC, which in fact is producing about 80% of the world's supply. Some phone manufacturers have their own mines, but the majority are controlled by gangs in the Democratic Republic, which is close 
to being a failed state. The mines are defended by child soldiers. Mark told us about the charity Falling Whistles, which attempts to rescue those child soldiers. Find the full story at the website fallingwhistles.com and learn what happens to infants in a lawless nation with nothing but a whistle to defend themselves with. The message is that coltan is a conflict material, but by the time that it has been refined in Japan, blended with supplies from other countries and built into tantalum capacitors in Taiwan, no one can say where it came from. Think of the child soldiers when you get a new phone and throw away the old one. Think also not only of the physical materials that went into that phone, but think of the water, the energy and the human labour that were involved. All of that is thrown away when we discard a phone or any product. Even if some of the material is recovered for recycling, and most of it is not, the benefits of all the other inputs are lost. That's the penalty of measuring recycling by volume, not value. If resources are scarce now, they will rapidly become more scarce. A key driver is population. This has nothing to do with the birth rate and everything to do with rising expectations. Between now and 2030, 3 billion people will move into the middle classes with middle class expectations in terms of standard of living. We are in danger of satisfying the demand from those consumers for additional material goods without taking into account the true costs. For example, water is now a scarce resource in many parts of the world. Water is being pumped up from deep aquifers containing fossil water, as discussed in a recent episode. Water that's been there for millions of years and is not being replenished. And while there may be plenty of it now, once it's gone, it's gone. Relatively common minerals like gold are becoming more difficult to obtain. Nuggets are no longer picked up at the miner's feet. There could be as little as three grams of gold per tonne of ore. Extraction involves boiling mercury or sodium cyanide, both incredibly toxic. There's less gold in a tonne of ore than in a tonne of the old mobile phones we leave in a drawer or throw away. We need to look at different business models, different efficiencies, different processes. An example is thin client computing, which puts everything in the cloud so that users' computers can be simpler, cheaper, and since they are little more than web browsers, longer lasting. More examples in a moment. And what are the UK? Like many Western nations, we have offshored our manufacturing to China and beyond. So incidentally, their pollution is our pollution. Additional pollution is due to the majority of consumer electronics being air freighted in from Far Eastern factories. Increasingly, the UK economy depends on designing products for others to make and on financial services. More and more design students are coming from China. Soon they will go home and manufacture their own designs. And in this world of instant communications, why should financial services be based in any particular geographic location? If we lose these economic drivers, how will we pay for the goodies and the necessities we love to buy from abroad?
Could we make them ourselves? Manufacturing skills have almost disappeared and could vanish in as little as five years. Most nuclear engineers are already retired, which is why we, sorry, why the government plans to buy nuclear power stations from China. Efficiencies are not enough. We need to reinvent UK manufacturing PLC and do it soon. By far the most popular episode of the Sustainable Futures Report goes back to March 2014. It's my account of the Circular Economy Conference at Bradford University organised by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. You can find it at susbiz.biz in the March 2014 archive. And there is a text version which contains all the links in my blog of the same date at anthonyday.blogspot.co.uk. This is very relevant to the next presentation because the second speaker was Tracy Rawling Church, who is head of CSR at Kyocera Document Solutions UK. You can find her on LinkedIn and you can find out more at greenlight.kyocera.co.uk. Kyocera is K-Y-O-C-E-R-A. So that's greenlight.kyocera.co.uk. Kyocera is a printer manufacturer and more, as we shall see. Other printers are available, but only Kyocera supplies printers where you can simply top up the toner rather than buying a complete new printing engine, which other manufacturers make you do. A Kyocera printer cartridge is built to last the life of the machine, and at the end of its life, the whole printer can be disassembled with a single screwdriver. Each plastic component is marked with its plastic type so that it can be appropriately recycled. Unfortunately, that's not how recycling works at the moment. The whole thing is usually shredded into mixed plastics and any metal is separated for recovery. Kyocera does have third-party service partners who specialise in disassembling their machines and recovering almost everything. This is the way of the future, but it's only possible if products are designed for disassembly and recycling or reuse. Tracy reminded us that the current economic model is take, make, discard. We take raw materials from mines or farms or forests. We make it into goods, usually wasting a lot of scrap or pollution on the way. Then after as little as a few days, we discard it and send most of it to landfill, perhaps not even a few days. Well, how long are you going to hold on to your Christmas wrappings? Incidentally, did you see Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's War on Waste programmes the other week? In the second one, he presented us with seven tonnes of discarded clothes. How long does it take the great British public to throw away seven tonnes of clothes? A month? A week? A day? Apparently it's ten minutes. Of course, they will have owned them for longer than that, but they must be buying seven tonnes every ten minutes. Distant sweatshops must be turning out seven tonnes destined for the British market every ten minutes. Someone must be growing the cotton or manufacturing the nylon or weaving the fabric or making the dye, using labour and energy and resources and water. Anyway, back to Tracy's presentation and the circular economy. 
the model which retains value by not only reducing, reusing and recycling, but by repairing, refurbishing, repurposing and more. Why buy a drill when you need a hole? Why buy a printer when you need to communicate information? Tracy told us about the paperless office and how difficult it is to realise, even in these days of email. Apparently, 63% of office printing is unnecessary on average, and proper document management can eliminate it. Meanwhile, the UK wastes 232,000 trees, 95 million gallons of water, 5 million gallons of oil, and 55 gigawatts of electricity. The question is, what are you actually trying to do? Start with the end in mind, as someone once said. Kyocera now have a document service business helping clients with business process optimization and improving workflows. Perhaps clients don't need more printers. Perhaps they need to manage their data flow better. In fact, Kyocera are selling fewer printers, but are offsetting this with revenues from their document management consultancy. They can take control of a client's printer network put printer service in the cloud and sell the client a printing service. The client's IT department no longer has to worry about where printers are, why they are there or whether they're working. Equally, Kyocera have taken printers beyond the traditional waste hierarchy. Their obligation is to keep a client printing as much as the client needs to. And as long as that objective is achieved, they can repair, refurbish, reuse, and only as a last resort, recycle the hardware. This is a classic case study of the circular economy in action. The watchwords are dematerialize and servitize, which basically means forget the kit, concentrate on the service. Longer ago, everyone in the UK would rent their TV. This is partly because sets were so expensive and credit was difficult to get. Now sets are much cheaper, credit is easy and people prefer to buy. They are cheaper partly because we ignore the true cost of conflict materials, the cost of declining resources and the cost of disposal. There are high street outlets which will still rent you a TV, a computer, a cooker, fridge or washing machine, even furniture. In principle, if you can have the very latest, most efficient appliances or electronic gadgets for a small monthly payment, why wouldn't you? If the vendor will maintain the items for no extra charge, supply newer versions if you want them as soon as fashion dictates, passing the older ones down the line for use elsewhere, why not? We're already just starting to do it with cars. Apparently Ford now makes 80% of its profits from services rather than from the sale of cars. Sadly, those high street outlets which will let you furnish a home on weekly payments are aimed only at those consumers who cannot get any sort of credit. I noticed in the window of my local store that they charge 99.9% APR and they don't take the items back for refurbishment or reuse. Nevertheless, this has to be the model of the future. How else will we satisfy the exploding global middle class? This week I attended the Birmingham Sustainable Futures Forum. Matt Dredger presented his Borrow Club idea. Why buy a drill, he asked, if all you need is a hole? Why buy a drill if, on average, you'll only use it for 12 minutes a year? Have I heard that somewhere before? His answer is Borrow Club, 
something between eBay and FreeCycle. You post your drill, or whatever you have, online and let people borrow it for a fee. You get your money back over time and the users get the use of an item for a fraction of its cost. I can see some problems, but I can see a lot of advantages. Another step towards the circular economy. Find Borrow Club at borrowclub.co.uk. That's B-O-R-R-O-C-L-U-B dot co dot uk. There is no W in Borrow Club. Yes, this is Anthony Day. This is the Sustainable Futures Report, and we're nearly at the end of another edition. First of all, back to COP21. I had a message this week from Jeremy Leggett. You will too if you've subscribed to his book. Here's some of what he had to say. On Saturday the 12th of December 2015, I witnessed something that nothing else in human history comes close to in terms of scale and stakes. Most of the nations on Earth, 195 of them, adopted the world's first universal agreement to fight an existential threat to civilization and indeed life as we know it on the planet. The clear signal, not to be confused with the problem-solved scenario that was never on the table, will be most strongly felt in the energy sector, from where most of the emissions that threaten a livable climate derive. Top of a long list of implications, the signal will tell financial institutions that the hundreds of billions of dollars invested annually in clean energy today will become trillions, and much faster than most people ever suspected. It will tell energy incumbents that the fossil fuel era is over, that they are now in an era of transition, of rapid managed retreat, whether they like it or not. I'm glad he's optimistic, but I believe we must be constantly vigilant, especially in the UK. And finally, the government is preparing to sell off the Green Investment Bank, but before it can do so, it will have to change its structure and remove restrictions on its operations. This means it will be able to invest in fracking. Yes, you know, fracking, which is now permitted in national parks. This is Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Show. No, the Sustainable Futures Report. There's another one next week. Yes, really. Happy Christmas when you get to it. And bye for now. <laughs>